listening to the Darkest Hour podcast, the show that delivers a thorough but loving autopsy of horror films past and present. We are still knee-deep in the carnage created by the Halloween series, and we've moved 20 years of real time from Halloween 1 to a film that they cleverly called H2O, even though... I don't believe there's any kind of water motif here uh, other than the the flowing tears of the people who had to watch this movie. Uh Uh-oh, that might be a little bit of a giveaway as to my opinion. I'm John Evans, and I am joined by my co-host, Vikram Wheat. Vic, are you ready to discuss Halloween H2O? Oh, God damn it, John. You've already spoiled it. We're going to be on such opposite sides of this. That'll be fun. Uh, yes, it's it's fun to be combative with you. Um, <laughs> it seems like that's been the tenor yeah. of the show uh, recently. <laughs> but but how are you tonight, Vic? <laughs> and what are I'm, you drinking? I am recovering from a uh, a quick bout of some sort of cold uh, that I fully expect this podcast to send me spiraling back into. So hopefully, I won't have to go to work tomorrow. I'm betting uh, on no, Vic. I'm betting that you you don't. Uh, that's my yeah. guess. I am playing it safe tonight. I'm just drinking a Hogarten. Uh, which is uh, comparatively low alcohol for my usual taste. So hopefully I will be razor sharp, on point, very, uh, very coherent uh, through most of this podcast. So, you know, sorry, everybody. <laughs> that will be a major change from the, the Vikram that we uh, know and love as, as listeners of the show. Yes, the usual rantings and, and, and ravings as I get progressively drunker over the course of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll easily handle my drunk ass in our debate then, because I intend to drink tonight, um, largely because I am not terribly prepared for this show, Vic. I often watch the movies twice. I often delve deeply into special features. I listen to commentaries. I soak up as much uh, of the film as I possibly can. And in this case, Vic, I could not bring myself to do that. You watched two versions of Halloween 6, but you couldn't do it. All right, that's fine, because I'll have you know, I did a little bit of work for this podcast. I watched the movie twice. Now, granted, once uh, I was uh, driving uh, in my car. <laughs> that's not advisable. Second time. That's yes, not advisable. That is not say, well, look, the, the, the 405 uh, between <laughs> 4 and 6 o'clock, you can really only go about 10 miles an hour. So – but yeah, so I have I have taken it in uh, twice. Uh, I have not I'm I am not a wealth of trivia uh, on this film, but I think I have a a little bit of it put together. I've done some uh, some research on the key players, so uh, hopefully we'll be able to we'll be able to delve into this a little bit and maybe even sway your opinion, John. That's really what I seek to do. Is I want to I want to enlighten you uh, to the to the brilliance of this film. Man, that is a tall order, my friend. Uh, you have a uphill climb, is all I can say about that. And I do think we should kind of go big picture a little bit and have a little conversation before we even delve into sort of the backstory. We will talk about how this movie uh, came to be, but I just want to give you my 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 the thesis of my problem with this movie, and then I'll let you respond, and then we'll get granular. How does how does that sound? That sounds wonderful, okay. John. Okay, because. Let's not bury the lead here, folks. We have just, as, as listeners know, we have just delved into a uh, unbelievably bad uh, sequel, which was The Curse of Michael Myers. And 
I did, in fact, watch both versions of that and and get a degree of enjoyment out of especially the producer's cut. Well, I think this is really, Vic, where we we start to get into the issue of ambition with a film. And I think we've discussed this, you know, over the years on this podcast, but boiling it down, give me a movie that is wildly creative, even if it's batshit nuts and fails to execute 80% of what it's setting out to do. Give me that movie over a film that feels like half of a movie that really has about as much plot as a one-hour television show that they padded by eh, about 18 minutes. I mean, this movie is absurdly short. I was shocked watching it when I looked up and I'm like, oh, shit's finally happening. And my wife had just gotten home from work and we're going to watch Game of Thrones because we're getting ready to watch the new season. Um, And by the way, uh, by the time that anyone listens to this, the new season will be over, I'm sure. But anyway, (laughs) that's a little editing joke there, folks. Um, But anyway, she, you know, we're getting excited to watch that tonight, that night's episode. And I looked and I'm like, oh, there's probably at least, you know, 45 minutes left of this movie because barely anything's happened. 26 minutes were left in this movie at that point. I don't remember the exact moment, but suffice it to say, the characters had just found out that Michael Myers was back. And I just I think that's a telling anecdote about how little is going on in this movie. I'm shocked at at the the absence of ambition here. All right, Vic, take it away. What's your rebuttal to that? I actually take that as one of the film's strengths, especially compared to uh, the a lot of the previous entries. Because number one, you're introducing outside of Jamie Lee Curtis a whole new cast. And they really do the legwork to get you invested in these characters and in their relationships to catch you up on where Laurie Strode is at and how she got there. Uh, It takes a while to get going, but they give you a gangbusters opening that lasts much longer, I think, and is much better executed than a lot of the, like, opening kills. It's fine. Um, It's fine. I'll give you that. I found myself caring about Laurie's relationship with the counselor. I found myself caring about the relationship between Josh Hartnett and Michelle Williams structurally the movie this reminds me of is the descent Hmm. because that's another film where you get 45 minutes into the movie before you really get the first scene of your main antagonist killing anybody or doing anything that that really resembles a horror film now this doesn't have some of the caving stuff you know there's other ways that they're able to elicit tension and so i do think the thing that drove me nuts in the first 45 minutes is, is there's far too many jump scares but a jump scare is hey, a, we is agree a, on something <laughs> but a jump scare is a, is a tool in your toolbox and and it's something in the descent that they use perfectly they have i think three really good uh, jump scares with the first opening death scene, uh, then her dream sequence, the, the main character's dream sequence, and then the bats once they get inside the cave. Those are three really effective ones that are just like, hey, we're setting up a lot of character shit, but don't forget you're watching a horror movie. Now in this one, they have like 15. Like every time somebody turns around, there's somebody standing right there and there's a stinger. And that didn't Um, drive you fucking nuts. It did. And it did more so the second time. But the point is that it's, they, they overdid it, but the, the thought process was correct that they're trying to fill this character driven portion of the film with something to, to goose you a little bit and make you remember that you're in a horror film. They did too much of it, but, 
But isn't uh, the, that pathetic that they realized that they they what they were doing and how little was actually happening, and so they make these horrible pandering half-assed attempts at jump scares at every turn just to like keep you awake i don't feel that way about it in the descent where there isn't there really isn't anything more going on in terms of the characters by the way i think i do have to hats off as a debating tactic let's instead talk about the descent is brilliant because i i can't say anything bad about the descent <laughs> well i'm so i'm saying that structurally and in terms of how they deploy the jump scares in the in the opening section of the film i think that is the correct uh comparison now again the descent does it much better uh but i don't hold them again i don't hold it against them for using that as a way to move the the story along yeah, well, I agree with you there, and I, I certainly uh, think that it it could work, and it did work in the descent. But you know, obviously, I, I don't think it worked here. I think you made some good points there, but um, you're I th- goddamn right, I did, John. <laughs> you have yet to sway me, my friend. So let's get into sort of the the backstory of the movie. It it, it is kind of as always interesting after a few years away from a franchise when everyone says, "All right, well." You know, how do we pick up the pieces from the last one? And I will say that uh, Curse of Michael Myers definitely uh, presented screenwriters uh, a confounding challenge as far as what to do with um, the 15 to 25 loose ends that were left behind and just, you know, batshit nuts stupidity that uh, that movie ended on in either cut. I mean, honestly. I've heard a couple different things. It's interesting because I did watch one featurette on this and they never mention Kevin Williams Williamson, but I'll mention him because he's going to, you know, he casts a very large shadow over this film, both directly and indirectly. But the screenwriter of record on this film wrote a script that, and this is coming from his interviews on the, on the Blu-ray that I've been watching. He wrote a script that did not have Jamie Lee Curtis in it, but he sort of introduced the idea of this, academy uh, a private school i think there was going to be a, a copycat killer involved and it impressed the akads but then they said well guess what we're getting uh, this was to be a direct to uh, dvd feature we're getting jamie lee curtis and it's going to be theatrical and we want you to write it but we're throwing out the the script that you wrote and he was of course you know happy because he's getting paid and whatnot and it's going to be a much higher profile project but then they sort of had to uh, reimagine it with Laurie Strode being in there. And it's funny because that really differs from the Wikipedia page, which doesn't even mention this guy. And it talks about Kevin Williamson having written a script that was called uh, Halloween 7, The Revenge of Laurie Strode, which makes a lot of sense. as a It's a cool idea. Like Michael has been running roughshod for all of these years and, and now it's, it's Laurie's turn and who's going to stop him? It would, of course, be Laurie Strode now that uh, Loomis is dead and there's a you know there's a nice sort of bookendy quality to that of course everyone immediately thinks well if Jamie Lee Curtis is coming back can we get John Carpenter back and there was initially some interest again reports vary pretty drastically as to how that fell apart but suffice it to say uh, they weren't going to compensate him uh, sufficiently to what he wanted or what he was demanding so he did not end up coming back, and they went with Steve Miner, who is sort of a, a podcast favorite here in that he did a couple of pretty damn good Friday the 13th movies. He's, he's done a couple of other horror movies that I rather like. 
So um, on paper, that would seem like a pretty good choice to direct the film. Vic, why don't you, you know, pick up anywhere in there where you want to start talking about the sort of the development or the genesis of this um, fabulous movie that really makes The Descent, you know, look like a mediocre episode of Tales from the Dark Side. Nice. <laughs> Tales from the Dark Side drop. Uh. <laughs> Mostly what I remember is Jamie Lee Curtis. I remember an interview with her where she talked about just having lunch with Kevin Williamson and the two of them having a conversation about where they felt Laurie Strode would be 20 years later, uh, which I think is another one of the strengths of this movie. Number one, that they made what I think at the time was more of a bold decision to kind of cast off the shackles of all the bullshit from the, you know, the previous Halloween movies and say, you know what, we're just going to ignore all that. And we're just going to go back and make this a, a sequel to the second one. Although it's interesting to note in the, in the opening credits, when we're panning over the wall in the nurse's house that, that Lori, when Lori faked her death, she did fake her death in a car crash, uh, which is of course how she died after uh, uh, giving birth to, to Jamie in the, the fourth and fifth films. I'm, I'm not sure if that was just a coincidence or a, or a, a nod because obviously it doesn't connect to those movies in any other way. Uh, the Wikipedia um, does suggest that initially the Williamson draft or drafts did involve the Jamie backstory. And so maybe that's kind of a vestigial thing. And then they eventually decided to 99% ignore Jamie's existence. But it does still kind of connect if you're kind of orienting this whole story in the Halloween verse that it, it would still leave the possibility that uh, the films that we saw with Jamie, the last three films, essentially, um, could have happened other than the fact that she we never referenced Jamie in any other way. But it like what happened to Lori was that she supposedly died in a car accident. Well, that could still make sense here that that's how she faked her death and she she never knew what happened to Jamie so you could still say that 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 all of that did still happen other than the fact that in this film it very clearly suggests that Michael has just been i guess hanging out with the blind guy from Frankenstein from Bride of Frankenstein um, and he never, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't killed anyone that the world knows about since Halloween too. Exactly. In this, in this Halloween, Halloween verse. Yeah. John, how much do you want to bet that when, uh, Laurie Strode faked her death, she just dug up Ben Tramer's corpse and put it in the car and switched the dental records to make him the, uh, <laughs> to make him the body. She's like, he's already a crispy critter. It, it already looks like he's been in a car accident. Like, come on, this will be easy. Hey, uh, uh, you know, Ben, um, do me one last solid. I didn't actually get to the dance with you, but I know you were sweet on me. <laughs> one more favor, Ben. Uh, by the way, I, I think everyone heard the, the cat feeder went off early in this podcast. So we put that behind us already. Fair enough. My cat is is in my lap uh, as we speak. So there, there may be some... Uh, peripheral meows coming oh, there might come, be some uh, ryan right yeah, ryan that's, <laughs> that's very good actually that's it's not i mean it's not quite as good as your dr loomis impression but it's not bad thanks but anyways yeah so it's so i what i remember is jamie lee curtis talking about having lunch with kevin williamson who is of course hot shit coming off of scream and this really is i mean this movie this is the post scream version of a halloween movie i think it lacks a lot of the 
super meta stuff that you that you got from screen but you do have little touches like janet lee as a character and says something to jamie lee curtis about you know i don't want to be maternal but so painful, you know dude. some of that kind so of stuff painful. which i with that one yeah that one actually didn't didn't land very well but i was still happy to have janet lee in the film that's a little nod for us horror nerds and i and i like that oh you know what i, uh, I, re- I really like that uh in the fog in 1982 why are we they, doing it, it again now they didn't have any scenes together in the fog, if I remember uh, correctly. Uh, yeah, but, I mean, and they even play like a little uh, psycho uh, light motif when she's when she turns around and it's the same car that she drives from Psycho, and all of that is really cute. But what the fuck does that have to do with a Halloween movie? You well, know? but that's what I but that's what I mean is I think that's where you feel scream again the 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 long shadow of scream sort of cast across this mm. but i'm not again i'm not sure that's a bad thing like you're you're mm. reinventing the michael myers sort of story for this new generation i think they found a way to do it i think it benefits from the the change in location a lot whatever other stuff they sort of cobbled together from other scripts this started with a conversation about where would laurie strode be 20 years later and that really is the central hook of this and that's what you're that's what you're selling is we've got jamie lee curtis back we've got laurie strode back and they do as i said when we did the the when we talked about the david gordon green halloween film they did a better job i think of sketching out her character and 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 sort of filling in the parts of her life between now and then and leaving her in a more believable place. And again, I think there's some overlap, but if you think about it, David Gordon Green and, and Danny McBride tried to do essentially the same thing, right? They're going to, they're going to scrap the the parts of the story that they don't want in their case, meaning the idea that she was his uh, uh, sister. And then they're going to tell the story that they want to tell based off of that. Except in that instance, because you both lose the fact that she's his sister and you lose the events of Halloween too, it's like half the trauma, but she's twice as traumatized. Yes. And so that's where I think that they got that right with this, that she is, she is properly traumatized for what mm-hmm. she has been through. Uh, and the fact that Michael Myers is her brother makes it that much more sort of poignant that she still has nightmares and that she, she drinks heavily but it's something that she conceals and she has while well, she has a, a difficult relationship with her son. They're not estranged like she is from her daughter in the in the Danny McBride version. So, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of that stuff that they get right with her character. And I think Kevin Williamson has a lot to do with that. Well, the other big shadow other than the one, you know, cast by Scream on, on all the entire genre of horror at this point is is the shadow cast by uh, our 2000. 18 remake of of this film or whatever you want to call it the david gordon green version which i mean undoubtedly will always be compared to this movie because you know i've been saying uh all along since we uh saw that film that it's it's drawing from from all of the halloween films to to varying degrees and uh, you know no one would argue that this is the movie it bears the most similarity to right because, I mean, you could just say, you know how some articles, and this is always very sort of ridiculous and slanted, but they, they just say, in this movie, Laurie Strode is a drunk. In this movie, Laurie Strode is a drunk. In this movie, Laurie Strode isn't a good mom. In this movie, Laurie Strode isn't a good mom. You know, like where you can see they're the exact same movie. Well, you know, there are a lot of those that you could somewhat unfairly uh, draw because 
this movie is basically the exact same thing except uh however many years is it has it been a it hasn't quite been another 20 years but um no no john it totally has this really movie came out this movie came out in 98 oh my god and yeah and the yeah. other came out in 2018 so it's like oh, wow that's perfect okay thank you perfect symmetry perfect symmetry so we're just now she's a grandma but she's very traumatized by these events and and she you know, has it's caused a lot of problems with your kids. So whether or not you believe that it was done better in 2018 or 1998, that's, you know, that's a separate conversation. But it's, again, fascinating to me that the more of these films that I watch again since watching the 2018 movie, the more I realize that the big hit that has everyone so happy about Halloween again is really just a complete recycling job of previous Halloween movies. I agree with you that I prefer the depiction of her post-traumatic stress in this film. And I think that her relationship with her kid is has more authenticity in this film than it does in the new one. And the, and the relationships between the kids, right? Between Hartnett and his girlfriend oh versus my God. the granddaughter and... No, 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 no. I, really? I, no, 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 no. I do there's... not. Okay, we can get into that. We will get into that. I don't think there's anything remotely exceptional about the relationship between the kids in this movie. And I will say that the new movie has a lot more surprise and delight is an advertising term, but I'm just going to use it in that, like, it's more witty and the characters are more. Like, I mean, the little the little African-American kid alone in the new movie is better by huge leaps and bounds than any of these kids. Well, all right. I'll give you that. But the, come on, that kid's awesome. <laughs> uh, but there's there's nothing in here that approximates the silliness of the the granddaughter throwing the boyfriend's phone in the punch okay. or pudding or whatever. Yes, that, was. that is and dumb. That, and the silliness of the infidelity storyline in there and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I mean, even though or the or the or the unattractive kid like, you know, no. trying to force himself on her. That look, there I, I really think that there's more sharp, interesting dynamics going on in in just the relationship between the the the, the chubby kid and her than there is in this movie. I mean, like, it's it's right out of the box, horny teenagers bullshit. I mean, this is... I, I, I actually thought that the, the radio shock jock talking about the crotchless panties was way more interesting than the, the horny kid in this movie. Why don't we have jungle sex? Or whatever the hell he says when they're, <laughs> like, supposed to be listening to <laughs> Laurie Strode talk in front of the students. It's so all bad. Right. It's not even Kevin Williamson. There's a couple of lines that you're like, all right, that's not a bad, you know, Dawson's Creaky kind of a line between teenagers. I'm not going to say that it's like painfully wooden when his girlfriend, the horny guy and the girlfriend are, are cooking together. Like there's a couple okay-ish, you know, decent lines. But like what is memorable about those two kids? What is memorable about any of these kids? I I, def I defy you. And look, Michelle Williams and Josh Hartnett. I'm a big fan of like uh, Penny Dreadful and uh, 30 Days of Night. And, you know, let's not even get into Michelle Williams. I mean, these are good actors. And this is, these are 
horrible, bland characters, in my opinion. I think they are uh, subtle but interesting and believable. Okay. Let's get let's get into it. Okay. I, th- this is the the nitty gritty that I feel like will come out as we uh, rubber, as we go through the story a little bit. The rubber will hit the road. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Well, I'm going to hit play on the on the Blu-ray so that I can see what's going on uh, as as we talk. Vic, did you know this? This is a Miramax movie. Mm-hmm. But they wanted to put their artistic stamp on it. Uh, it's not. It's not a dimension movie. Well, you know, it is both is high... of them apparently. Uh, both yeah. both cards come up, and we do open with a uh, pumpkin, and it's just somebody stabbing a pumpkin with kids, and then you sort of pan over a, a street of, uh, you know, the typical kind of uh, Halloween movie uh, neighborhood that we've come yeah. accustomed to in these films. Well, I do love the the use of uh, Mr. Sandman. Yes, in the in the soundtrack, I found that that very effective. Even you know, there's a couple. They always do sort of these these weird uh, uh, anachronistic things where things sort of feel like the 1950s a little bit. Some of it works better than others, but that's one that I found particularly effective. It really it really fits, really sets the tone, especially for this opening scene. Do you even remember the fact that like that that song? figured extremely heavily in i want to say the second one part two yeah Yeah, no totally and that that's another i mean that is kind of a clever bit of connective tissue because Mm -hmm. yeah this movie is (laughs) unlike the new one where they jettison halloween 2 go right back to the first one well this one is saying no halloween 2 happened and so there's a lot of little bridges between halloween 2 and and this movie yes and that's one of them which I think is pretty artful because if you're a Halloween fan, I think you do associate uh, that song with these movies. It's kind of shocking to begin in a, a town that isn't Haddonfield, but we are in uh, Illinois and uh, we get a sort of Halloween-esque themed uh, font, but not exactly uh, the the one that we're familiar with because, I don't know, copyright issues. And we established that we're, we're in the... Um, basic area that the other films have have followed and keen observers of the series uh might recognize the first character uh who is a nurse with a cigarette in her mouth and i would imagine that would be a welcome sight for longtime fans of the series because of course <laughs> this is the nurse from halloween one and two uh who's probably most memorable for the fact that she's a nurse who smokes but um, her name is something very much like uh, the character in Psycho, like it's Marion Chambers or something, which is mm-hmm. um, yet another nod, which I guess is um, appropriate in that, you know, Psycho is the first uh, slasher movie uh, made in America. I believe that's true. And I do. I mean, again, I like I like that aspect of the callback. And I love I mean, there's the just as an audio cut when she steps on the glass and that's when the soundtrack cuts out. And that's when you realize she realizes that her house has been broken into. And this is the first instance of one of the things that I think is really one of the strong points in this movie. What they're going to do is set up, okay, her house has been broken into. She's not just going to walk into the house and go, hello, is anybody here? Which is great. It's like the first smart thing that happens is a character does something rational. She goes next door. She calls the police. uh, And then, of course, the dumb teenagers want to go over and check it out. But what they're doing is setting up the relationship between these two houses, the relationship between the kids. So you see her go next door. You see her inside. You see them come back out, go back next door. We get Joseph Gordon-Levitt for some reason. (laughs) 
Um, and I love, I want to be clear. I love Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think Brick is a, an, an underappreciated uh, masterpiece of a movie. But yeah, I'm not sure what he's what he's doing in here besides being, you know, charismatic in a in a part that doesn't really call for it. Um, <laughs> but well, but look, I mean, this is this is just something that I'll say in general. And this goes back to something you were saying. We keep say, we keep going on and on about how the 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 talent matters. If you have good actors, it helps you sell these movies. And that's what. Danielle Harris and Donald Pleasance and, you know, some of the other uh, supporting actors, the girl that played Tina, you know, those four and five, they have some strong performances from some of those, those supporting characters. And I really think you get that in this movie. It feels like they really tried to get good actors to fill out all the parts around Jamie Lee Curtis. And that really makes a difference. But really what they're setting up is the the mechanics of how this opening scene is going to play out. And it's something that I, especially when I'm writing a horror film, like I'm obsessed with the mechanics of how you're going to make a scene play. Okay, what's, you're in a room, there's a bad guy outside. What's in the room? Okay, there's a lamp, there's a stapler, there's a this, there's a that. What can you use? How can you use this to draw out the suspense in a way that's believable so that there doesn't have to be, you know, a, a, chainsaw in the closet you know it's it's you have to make things work in this way and so they set up the 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 relationship between these two houses and the two spaces she calls the cops he goes in looks around we see that the office is trashed uh and there's all the the stuff on the walls about jamie and the missing files and this kind of stuff uh we get an amusing bit when he gets spooked and trashes the the kitchen with his hockey stick, uh, uh, which is followed by uh, still another amusing bit when he comes out and it's like, oh yeah, no, they didn't. Doesn't look like anything's gone. There's, you know, the office got messed up. Oh, and they, boy, they did a number in your kitchen too, um, which I found again just a nice little. And and, and again, it's you're not going to get a laugh out of that if you have, you know, somebody delivering it blandly. And I felt like uh, that's when having Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he gets you that laugh in a way that another actor might not. I, I do want to just kind of comment on what you're saying and JGL. Um, yes. Oh, he, he... oh, John, wait, no, just no. <laughs> I listened to two um, podcasts um, about this movie, like just totally random. I don't want to say amateur, but um, let's call them indie podcasts. And one was two guys and one was two girls and the girls called him JGL. So um, and they were all uh, a lot younger than us. I wanted to point yeah. out. <laughs> I, John, I almost said you sound like a 14-year-old yeah. girl, but you sound like a 14-year-old girl in 2012. <laughs> it was, it was. by the way, it was an interesting uh, perspective uh, to take in. But um, they both, That's you also, know. Wait, wait, wait. I just got to point out, too. This is your version of not doing any homework, yes. is you listened to two podcasts and watched a featurette. <laughs> that's true. I could have done worse, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I went to the gym uh, right before we did this and that's what I was listening to. Look, he does sell this stuff and this, this whole sequence, it plays. It's, it's pretty good. I mean, I think that as much of uh, a hater as I ultimately am of in this film, I, I think that, you know, when I was watching this both the first time and, and now um, I'm like, Ooh, you know, like, okay. You know, there's a little bit of tension here. There's a little suspense. They're playing games with us. There's nice little 
tension release moments, which is which are the humorous beats of as he works his way through this kitchen, and it's well conceived and well executed. By the way, we never did our first uh, relationship with this film uh, part of the podcast, which is one of the obligatory things. And I actually have a, a little bit of a story for it, and I didn't want to shoehorn it in, you know, completely clumsily, but. Uh, I think, you know, <laughs> this is as why good you, as it. Why you screwed the pooch on that one. Yeah. Man. Sorry. Well, this, this is as good as of an opportunity as we're going to have. <laughs> I Fair was enough. I was in college and I, I was writing movie reviews for my uh, college uh, newspaper. And somehow I got a press screening pass. Um, and I was in Olympia, Washington. And the, the screening was up in Seattle, 60 miles. So I drive up 60 miles to Seattle. It's still a very kind of small, dumpy screening room. And I look around, there's like 20, maybe not even 20, I don't know, media here, like watching this advanced screening of H2O. One of them is very recognizably the critic Michael Medved, the family values uh, themed uh, oriented uh, critic. And speaking of haters. (laughs) Yes, yes, very much so. He, while we're watching this film, I'm like very tempted to shush this guy because he has an apple and he's just taking these big bites out of the apple. So like during like a suspenseful sequence, you'll suddenly hear as he takes a big old bite out of this apple. And I'm like, this is fucking rude. You go to, how many movies do you go to? You're at a professional screening and this is how you're conducting yourself? So maybe that detracted a little bit from my enjoyment of the film. I wish I could dig up my review of this film if I actually wrote one, but I don't, you know, that was like 15 computers ago. Long story short, I did not care for this movie at all when I first saw it. So that's my relationship with the movie up until today. How about you, Vic? What was the first time that you saw it? Wait, first off, I can't believe you had a chance to tell Michael Medved to shut the fuck up and you didn't you didn't seize it. I should um, have. I mean, I was I was about yeah. 22 years old or whatever. Um, but that's a, yeah, that's exactly have. the that's exactly the time to do it. <laughs> I was not uh, devastated that we were sailing past that cuz I honestly don't remember the first time I saw it. I mean, I would have been I would have been in college too when it came out. I don't think I saw it in the movie theater, but I just kind of generally, I had sort of a, a, a warm vibe around it. I remember coming out and feeling satisfied that it was a, that it was a good movie, especially after my, my devastation at the curse of Michael Myers, where I was mm-hmm. invested in the druidic mythology and how it was all going to play out. And then, you know, the answer was it, it, it was just awful. I can see uh, how so, this would be a, a breath of fresh air. After exactly. The Paul this, Rudd one. This very much felt like a uh, yeah, like a, a return to form a little bit for the for the series. So whereas uh, I no, had I seen, uh, by the way, I had seen the first Daniel Harris movie and then none of them until now. So uh, that was my like I, I've been an early, you know, preteen ish uh, with the first uh, Daniel Harris movie, then saw this like many years later. And I just was like, what the hell? Why would I care about this? It's just it's it's one of those movies that I've seen four or five times over the years and now have seen six or seven times. Good Um, good for you, Vic. Uh, Yeah. By the way, um, you'll never get those moments of your life back, Vic. You could have been playing with your children. You could have been reading great literature like you often do and try to talk about on the podcast. (laughs) That's that's not true, John. I was in traffic. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's true. I would say the fact that this you is were actually able, the best possible use of my time. You know, you've got a a really good point there. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> considering that you were on your commute, I guess like you could you could do a lot worse. But um, mm. I'm still marveling at the fact that you watched a movie while driving. But um, okay, no, it was it was pretty awesome, and I'm probably going to do it again. Um, well, when that busload of nuns goes off the cliff, cause you ran into them, I'm going to remember this, but luckily our podcast was the priority. So anyway, yeah. uh, yeah, as you were alluding to Joseph Gordon Levitt, also known as JGL comes out and, um, sends the nurse back into her home, uh, thinking that all is well, and she's still working on that cancer stick. Uh, the cops still have not showed up cause I guess they have a lot of bigger crimes in this tiny Illinois town. Uh, to deal with and she locks the door the lights don't work but you know it's been a long time since she's encountered michael myers in any way so she doesn't have too much to worry about she's checking this place out by the way this was uh in the original draft of the script by the the credited writer who we do need to name because uh that would be disrespectful not to Green, so, greenberg is that right uh well I'll, I'll i'll have it on the on the imdb here but he uh this was in the version that they threw out entirely like this scene was always in there and i think a good open has that quality like you you move everything around that movie uh around that scene uh you know that needs to change but you keep you keep the open uh if it really works because a a good open is so so important and not that i've had any uh things produced but uh, the one script that I had go through many drafts and with many directors and, you know, I was actually paid option money and stuff are open, never changed in all of the drafts of the script because it was so effective. So, yeah, I can see why this this scene uh, would endure. By the way, yes, the writer is uh, Robert Zappia. Zappia? I think, yeah, that, that's the guy. Yeah. Matt Greenberg is also here, but I'm pretty sure from the special features that Robert Zappia is the guy that wrote the original draft and obviously kevin williamson is not listed on imdb so she's uh with a flashlight she's you know looking around the house and she sees that the door the back door is open and that's when she's like all right i'm out of here you know there's this is bad oh that's right okay Mm -hmm. yes i recall and she runs back to the neighbor's house and of course uh, Michael has already been there, which I do think is kind of cool. I mean, again, that's part of what makes this sequence cool is that while she mm-hmm. was there, he was in this other house killing the teenage boys. So they take the structure of this scene. If this was Friday the 13th part two, uh, even Halloween part four, you know, she she runs out of the house and then runs back into the house and then gets and then gets killed. You know what I mean? So we, the scene just sort of plays out the way you expect it to. It just takes a little longer, mm-hmm. you know, Friday the 13th two just being the way you expect it to play out where she gets a nice pick in the head. Uh, and so this, I feel like because they shift the location over, not only do they shift the location over, but then you have the cops arrive. Uh, and so she yeah. is, desperately trying to get the attention of the police because she is next door and the police are way, you know, are, are at her house, which makes sense um, logically, you know, because that's what I mean. It's the, so just again, from the, from the internal mechanics of how the scene plays out, it's really well constructed uh, to the point where like, as soon as the cops get inside, recognizing the breaking, the cops go inside. The second they're inside, she's able to smash the window and screams for help where, you know, I mean, it's, 
the the timing of it just works out extraordinarily well and then we get this very graphic uh throat slitting oh. uh, as michael myers pulls her back in um now now graphic and, uh, is not a, a word that i would use for that i mean i think that one of my main problems with this sequence and it's ironic because yeah as we've been discussing this is the best conceived and executed sequence in the whole movie um the the gore in this sequence is terrible and it, even like there's later on, I think they they show that they're not pulling too many punches. I mean, it's not yeah, um, it's not like buckets of blood or anything, but there's a couple of like cringy, uh, effective gore things. But in this sequence, like the big missteps to me, which are tipping off uh, later missteps, in a sense, is that when when the Joseph Gordon Levitt is like in this rocking chair, which is still moving. With this, you know, ice skate in his ice skate in his head. Yeah, yeah. I, I just Agreed. I don't think it's good. And then, like, the, we have this very, very old, like, it's almost like I don't want to say vaudevillian, but she opens the door, and the other kid is standing there, and he drops, and he's dead. I mean, I swear that's like 1960s, 1970s kind of uh, staging. I found the throat slitting effective. Okay, well, while the ice, while the ice skate was terrible. They at least set it up with him carrying the hockey stick around. I mean, oh, con- again, conceptually, that that's not a complete miss, but in execution, it, it is, and it, it's it's it really should be more effective than it is. And my problem with the throat slitting, I mean, I've watched it a couple of times now. It's like such a weak throat slitting. Okay, you know, if you and I were gonna do uh, a movie on our iPhone. You would put fake blood on the on the blade and, uh, you know, the obviously not sharp blade. And as you would draw the blade across the throat, it would leave like a little trail of uh, of food, you know, coloring, uh, you know, carrot, you know, caro syrup or whatever you're using mm-hmm. on the throat. Well, that's what this looks like to me, dude. I mean, this ain't some Tom Savini shit. This is like the most basic I don't believe that she died instantly when he did this. I absolutely hate it as a as a special effect. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It sucks, dude. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I just watched it again, and you know, a little bit of blood drips down, but it drips. It doesn't spurt. There's no actually opening in the flesh. It's and she just goes out like she's just been shot in the head. It just I don't like it at all. And the actress was saying that she gave him a fight and everything. And yeah, mm-hmm. but like I don't think that that was a good send off for her character, given what she'd done up to this point, like to, to, as you said, be a, you know, a reasonably smart character in a horror film. I like the suspense of how it played out. And I feel like Michael recognizing that he needed to shut her up very quickly, but uh, you're right. It does not go down in the, in the annals of, uh, of throat slitting. Uh, <laughs> it's not, it's not up there with uh, the red wedding. Mel, I was going to say Mel Gibson. That's what I always remember is Mel Gibson cutting the guy's throat in Braveheart. Oh yeah, I mean yeah, right at the are, beginning, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, a good throat slitting as is as disturbing as any kill. You know, I mean, yeah, it's a or it's a really bad way to go. You're choking on your own blood. It's not it's not instantaneous. It's not like you just get tapped in the cerebellum and your your spinal cord disconnects you from from the world or stops your heart or anything like that. I mean, it's it's not a good way to go. And it's sort of like that phony baloney TV movie kind of way to die the way that it's depicted yeah. here so and then we have these two cops that we never see again and they provide some expo to lead us into 
the opening title sequence, which I do think comparatively to the, maybe the last film at least is pretty smoothly shot as we see yet another obsessive person's wallpapering the room with uh, errata pertaining to uh, Michael Myers. And now we're 20 years later and apparently she has been obsessed with him this whole time. But I honestly, when I look at these photos and stuff, I, I don't get a lot out of it. Do you? I mean, what's, I didn't get a lot out of that. I did think that the the backstory came in pretty organically between the two cops. It's another one where they're it's a small performance, but I thought that they uh I thought that it worked. It didn't feel as sort of clunky, you know, Captain Exposition-y as it often feels in movies like this. Sure. That's what the that's what the wall is really giving you. Is I think, like I said, this is Halloween for the Scream generation. In case you haven't seen Halloween. Uh, we're going to catch you up so that you can watch this. This movie can exist as a standalone movie. And uh, and it brings back the original score. Uh, again, you know, Bob Weinstein realizing one of his terrible mistakes with Halloween 6. They don't overuse it. Uh, and I actually, I, I dislike some of the scoring uh, that they did here. But uh, I was glad that they, where they used this score, I I feel like it was used well. Again, you have sort of a not the full picture of the, of the last movie because the producer's cut again, the original cut of the last Mm -hmm. movie had wall to wall original score. So this sequence definitely has its, um, its attributes that are valuable, but like at some point you see a framed picture of, uh, Loomis that she has, which is absurd because it's obviously, you know, not the kind of picture that someone would frame. It looks like, it's actually used in one of the fake newspaper articles that they show here too. And, you know, it looks like somebody, a candid shot that as the, one of the podcasts I listened to tonight said, like the photographer was hiding in the bushes and took this picture. of (laughs) It's it's totally ridiculous, but I like the, the, the yearbook and you see Lori in the, in the yearbook and there, there's some good elements here. Yeah. It's like I said, it's, 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 it's serving a, a narrative purpose. Um, it's not overly artistic. It's not one of the better cre- uh, credit sequences in these films, but it's fine. Yeah. And uh, they, they and end with zooming into the eye of Michael Myers, which is just a black pit, which is pretty yeah. darn good. And, now, and a pencil when, sketch. Now, when do we see the car pull away? Is that's before that's before the cops go in, right? Just when the cops are getting there, he uh, he leaves in, um, I guess, Joseph, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's vehicle. Well, and it's because it, whatever it is, it's kind of like an older model sports car. It was the same thing. Mm-hmm. I just – the note that I made because it's the thing that comes up over and over and over again in these movies. It's like one of the things that makes my, Michael Myers a distinctive slasher is that he drives. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they always have to give him these weirdly distinct cars so that you can see it in the background and have it be creepy. And I was like, I was like of course like nobody has a Toyota Camry. We're coming up on the, the, you know, the next scene where he switches cars right. and he still manages to get some weird, older, distinctive car. It's one of those things that by this point is starting to feel a little annoying to me. Well, it's it's very intentional. Like they put a lot of thought into it and to the point yeah. where, yeah, it doesn't have a lot of like the natural authenticity of chance. Like it's, it's kind of absurd. Um, by the way, I, I heard like in one of these podcasts that they said that uh, I, I have not verified this. But that car that that he ends up using, that really old looking, uh, I don't know if it's not really a station wagon. It's kind of a jalopy. It's like, but a, it's, it's like a pickup truck, I think. Yeah, but, you know, it's very old. And this podcast claimed that it was the one that they used in the 
Bonnie and Clyde, the classic Faye Dunaway, Warren Beatty film. It was like the, the same car. A couple of movies ago, we had the car where the girl had committed suicide. So uh, take yeah. all of these stories with a uh, a grain of salt. But it's definitely like a, a very distinctive vehicle, as you said. So you, yeah. the, what what's your thought on this big POV sequence going through her office? Like it's as if we're in the, the looking through the eyes of who knows, maybe Michael Myers as we're going through an unfamiliar space to the audience, but we're, we're going to become acquainted with this space because it's this uh, school and the office of the headmistress who is actually Laurie Strode with a new name. It feels like, again, kind of a callback to the first film. Uh, but it's also, I mean, that's one of those ones that I don't mind. Like, look, if you're going to do a nice long uh, take a POV and have it be kind of smooth and creepy and, and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, again, it's not, it's not earth shattering, but it's, again, you're, you're, you're finding ways to keep this a little bit creepy and a little bit eerie uh, with the, you know, which they'll do subsequently with the dream sequences and some of her kind of hallucinations of him and stuff, which are again, more effective than, than the, the last 10 jump scares. Um, but but yeah, ultimately, I like it. it's revealed to be a dream, this sequence. But yes. they do have this callback uh, to the first movie where they actually insert footage from the first movie. I want to see what you think about that. And of course, it's the closet. And we sort of, I guess, like at some point decided that that sequence in Halloween, the original film where she's in the closet and he, you know, memorably crashes through the slatted door and she has to uh, fend him off with a hanger, that that is so, so iconic or so important that we have to directly reference it to the point of actually inserting footage from the 1978 film here. And then we, of course, make a huge deal of closets in the uh, 2018 film as well. Did that, I mean... Do you think that that's a warranted amount of attention to lavish on that sequence? Um, is that truly this sort of inmost cave to Laurie's psychology in in your eyes? I liked it better here than I did in the 2018 one where Laurie just had like three closets that all had <laughs> slatted doors in her house, <laughs> which which just seemed like an odd choice for her. I guess like if you're going to fixate on something, oh, it's a Halloween movie. We got to have a fucking closet, the slatted door uh, and a light yeah. on inside. I just like to me, that wouldn't be one of the things as a filmmaker where I'm like, oh, we got to have that, man. Got to have that. I agree with that. But it also it doesn't bother me terribly either. Um, it's you're getting we're going to we're going to get Jamie Lee Curtis, you know. Having a panic attack, so let's. Let's find some way to get there, and that's as good a way as it. Right, it's this very aliens kind of thing. She's actually wearing the exact same wardrobe as Sigourney Weaver uh, in Aliens as she wakes up from this nightmare that uh, we apparently we just experienced. And she's, you know, her son uh, is going through her medicine cabinet, and there's a ton of pills in there. And again, this is kind of like the the more grounded, less exaggerated version of the scenario we get in the 2018 film. Where, you know, okay, clearly she's still haunted by uh, the events of 20 years ago and she's, you know, relying on pharmaceutical crutches and alcohol to help her deal with the, the, the panic attacks and the existential dread that have never left her. 
Well, and it's a nice touch, I think, that just the fact that you see Josh Hartnett thumbing through the pills and looking for the, you know, okay, not this one, not this one, this one, this is the one that she needs. That's how you communicate to the audience that this is something that happens a lot. Yes. That he knows, he knows which pills to get for this, for this type of experience. Um, again, that's a, that's a nice detail in setting up their relationship a little bit. Cause that's the kind of stuff that becomes important in life. Absolutely. And you know, this movie of course takes place on October 30th and 31st, like all of the Halloween movies. I think it's worth like taking a beat to consider, all right, so how does that, how does that happen in this one? Cause we always end up talking about, well, you know, why does Michael strike on this particular night? And how did we get there? And in this film, Apparently, he has been not, which is frankly a huge relief to me, he has not been in an insane asylum. He is not escaping a prisoner transfer today. Um, But is it really that much more believable that he's been simply living in the world for 20 years without apparently killing anyone, or at least anyone becoming aware of him killing anyone? And I don't, maybe you understand this better than I do, but like when you're looking for the why now trigger, I believe the film posits that the son is now 17 and Lori was 17 last time around. So Michael has waited for her fucking son to be 17 and now that's why he's going to come kill her. And, I, you know, he's been completely free and at large God knows what he's done with his time, but he has not been killing people in any visible kind of a way. And he's just been waiting for her son to turn 17. Help me out here, Vic. All right. So first off, I like that they just leave Michael's whereabouts for the last 20 years a mystery. I'm glad he wasn't in insane asylum. Yeah. I'm glad he wasn't uh, hanging out in some blind man's uh, uh, <laughs> cave. So I- I'm kind of okay with just just letting that go. There's there's probably not a good answer. You just let it go. Michael was was somewhere mysterious. Okay, that's um, that is a total apologist <laughs> statement. <laughs> no, I I disagree. I think it's it's one of those things where you you can open the door too wide. You can give us too much information. I'm okay with not with not telling us that. One of the things that this podcast has tried to do is always take the mythology of the films whatever series or you know movie that we're looking at seriously enough to say what is not being shown here like what is the reality that would explain this and i am really struggling to find that like in all of all the ludicrous shit that this series has pulled over the last 3 or 4 movies and i'm not going to say this is as ludicrous as the the blind man nursing him back to health over a year without him uh, killing the guy or doing anything really, but lying there. This is kind of right up there because I'm just trying to imagine Michael spending his days. I guess he sat in uh, the the mental institution for however many years between killing his first sister and going after Jamie in 1978, like between 1963 and 78, but he was incarcerated. So, I guess in this world, he also found a room to sit in and, and what motivation would he possibly like really, he did he even know she had a son? This movie suggests that Halloween two happened 
there was the big fire. Uh, Loomis died and uh, there were no ashes or like no trace of Michael Myers being found when the, when the hospital blew up. So he went somewhere. She conceived and birthed uh, this little boy. Actually, I believe he's 17 and it was 20 years ago. So three years later, she had this, this boy and Michael is set, you know, says, I'm just going to chill out. And then for, for no reason at all, that makes sense to me, even within the mythology of, of the series, it's important to me that I come back when her kid is 17. I mean, help me out here, Vic. Like that is, that's worse than the, the, the rune of thorn. I think that that is not the thing that brings Michael back. I think that is the thing that triggers Jamie Lee Curtis into thinking that he's back. So why so is what, Michael back? I don't know because it's a Halloween movie. Oh my god! Why does dude. he? Why does he come back in Halloween four? It's twenty years, dude. Twenty fucking years. What does he do? What does he do for a year between Halloween's and the other movies? What does he do for again? Like I said, if you think about Halloween four, no, Michael Myers is just back. I mean, honestly, in a way, I I, I don't think you're correct there. I think that the the at least the up until this point, every time. He's incarcerated, and then he just breaks out on Halloween. I mean, love it he's or not, hate it, it explains his whereabouts. He, he, is he incarcerated at the beginning of Halloween 4? Yeah, he's incarcerated in every movie other than the year he spends with the blind guy, which is, uh, I, yes, it's ridiculous. But I'm 99% sure none of these other films have just suggested that he's walking the earth. Oh, for, you're right. He's in the... Yeah. He's in the hospital. I forgot. He's unconscious in the hospital in yeah. in Halloween Four. Yeah, yeah, that's the one where he put he puts his uh, you puts know his thumb, thumb through the guy's head. Yeah, yep. like up until this point, there's always been some attempt to explain what he's been doing with his time, and ninety percent of the time, it's the you know same thing, which is kind of ridiculous and lame at, at a certain point. But it's been well, he's locked up, and now this movie says that he's been. I don't know if he's paying rent or if he's living the life of a homeless man or, you know, is he working at the local garage changing out spark plugs? Cause we know he's good with cars, at least to a degree. Like what, how you have to have to like this movie, you have to have some theory as to how he could possibly be existing for 20 years, wearing this mask or not wearing this mask in society. Cause this is the only movie that asks you to do that. I like it. I like that it's a mystery. Okay. I agree. I don't think I don't think there is a good answer. So it's okay that they don't address it. Okay. Well, I guess we just have to leave that there. But um, for me, it's not a strength of the film. I, I guess that's all I can say. It's. It's. I agree. It's not a strength. But that's why. Again, I'd rather. I'd rather them play it the way they did than do something dumb. I mean, and yeah, I don't. Uh, and I don't. And I don't think there's a smart answer. I uh, think if you're going to make another Halloween movie. You have to – you either have to do something dumb or do nothing, and they opt to do nothing and make it kind of a mystery. Maybe there's a smart answer. You don't know. No. Maybe he was doing something creepy. Maybe he was the Zodiac killer in the in those 20 years. If they had just done the same exact thing where he breaks out of whatever again, I think that would have pissed me off even more. So I'll, I'll give you that. There you um, go. So let's put, the, let's put that to bed. Yes.
<laughs> so um, this, you know, relationship that Lori has with her son, obviously she's overprotective and he's, you know, trying to go camping with his friends and she doesn't want him to. And again, she hasn't seen hide nor hair of Michael for 20 years. So at this point, it, it, it's got to be a little bit irrational, right? Because no sane person would think he's out there fucking doing nothing for 20 years and they're going to come back. It's a power struggle. All right, I'll give it to you. You know, it's a parental uh, child power struggle. There's something inherently dramatic about it. The actors are good. The writing isn't terrible. It's all fine. You know, and this is a big anniversary for her. It's a hard, it's especially hard for her, obviously, every Halloween when this comes around. This is the 20th anniversary of it. They don't make a lot, by the way, they don't do anything in the actual movie that it's 20. Like, there's no significance to it being 20. This could have been yeah. 5, 10, 15, 25, you know? Yeah. Uh, whatever. I, that's fine. I'm just noting it. And then we meet the bodies, the the meat, the, the supporting cast. Again, I just, I find them completely undistinguished. One of the things that you get right off the bat is uh, when when Hartnett meets up with uh, Michelle Williams and her dad hasn't come through with the the financial aid yet. And so they set up this kind of class dynamic that she is the poor kid at this otherwise sort of preppy rich school, which then backs up the fact that she's working in the kitchen, which is where we use to set up the dumb waiter and that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, again, it doesn't it, – it's not like there's a huge arc to it, but she's also not a caricature. She's there's, – there's a little bit of depth. There's a little bit of something to her. It gives her something to play. And but I it think goes that, nowhere. It goes nowhere. Yes. Like I, I acknowledge that. But it also is – again, it, 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 it becomes part of her character. She has something to play. It puts her in the kitchen, which sets up, again, some of the mechanics and stuff that are going to play out later. And that's the stuff that I think is is really important. She doesn't have an arc, but it's not her movie. She could have been a, a ditzy cheerleader. But what you're saying is that the only functional purpose of this is to justify the fact that our characters have access to this you know, private school's kitchen and are completely unsupervised. But they're walking around this weird old school dumbwaiter equipped kitchen. So we need this stuff about her uh, dad flaking on financial aid and whatnot so that somehow the audience will instantly understand why these kids spend a lot of the, their screen time in this movie making food and and just sort of operating as kitchen staff at this facility that does not make sense to me <laughs> really we we need that like for that it, it just still doesn't work i'm still wondering you, like what the hell does anybody work at this fucking school she uh, it, look it, it gives her a character like it, it the fact that the fact that a supporting character's backstory doesn't factor into the plot beyond setting up some of the set pieces. I don't think it needs to do more than that. I like that she isn't, that that there is something else going on with her. Even if it's not a driving force in the story, it shouldn't be. She's so, a, she's a, a, a supporting character. But that is literally all there is to this character. That, that is it. She does have this relationship with John, uh, with Josh Hartman's character. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get a few allusions to their past or, you know, what they've shared. And they, for some reason, are celebrating Halloween as though it's a romantic milestone. Well, remember, because he's never celebrated it before. Yeah. But it's just, it's odd that, that like, he treats it like it's Valentine's Day or something. Like, that just... I don't get that either. Do you? Well, they sense? have the they have a they have an unsupervised weekend al- uh, alone at the school. He's using it to be romantic and presumably to get laid. We've seen in previous Halloween films, like if it's all leading up to losing your virginity or something, like okay, that would that would make sense. But let's talk about this mother and child because I think this is actually one of the things we like to talk about on these podcasts is where the iconic killer who has like a very defined MO, do they stray from their MO in some meaningful way? And by the way, I would almost uh, posit that the Halloween franchise as a whole has some kind of uh, obsession with waste functions or uh, (laughs) (laughs) because we have yet another set piece in a public bathroom. Yep. <laughs> Although public is a strong word because it's not only do we get a car from the 1950s that no mother and daughter would be driving just sort of randomly, we also have a rest area in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah. Like there's not even a parking lot. It's in a field. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's in the middle of a field. Putting aside any any ludicrousness of her being forced to use this uh men's room uh, for her child, uh, five or six year old who needs to go to the bathroom. I think what's notable about the sequence, other than yet another thing that the Danny McBride and, uh, David Gordon green, uh, film felt obligated to, uh, replicate in some way is that in this scenario, Michael does not kill them. And he really doesn't seem all that interested in killing them. And I think that, you know, like that is notable and that is worthy of analysis and discussion. I assume it's because the little girl is there. Yeah. Right? So does that then say, okay, so he he doesn't kill kids? And I would I would say that the while he's killed a bunch of dogs, he he's had kind of a I wouldn't, you know, maybe indifference is the word for kids where he'll, he'll let them like, you know, physically run right into him and he'll just, yeah, I mean, yeah it was on the street with like a bunch of people around, but kids are not high on his list of targets. I would say with, we, with the, with the exception of his niece. Right, right, right. And then, I mean, that would be a, a somewhat logical exception uh, yeah. to the rule. It's, it is still notable that he, he usually would kill these people, but he comes into the situation He sizes it up, and he's like, no, I'm just going to take their car. It's an effective scene, number one. I love that she props the door open with the rock, uh, Mm -hmm. and so it actually becomes, I thought, very effective when they're in the the bathroom and the door slams closed. So now there's no light, and I also thought, just incidentally, I sort of assumed that Michael had, had jammed the other door closed specifically to funnel people into the one restroom. But uh, that so would I make thought, sense because, like, effective. we established that his car, um, he has a flat tire or something, so he yeah. does need to. It's not exactly a honeypot, but he needs to, you know, set some kind of a trap here, right? I think we see the same behavior from Jason, I want to say in part six, when he walks through the cabin and all oh, the yeah. kids are sleeping and one of them wakes up or something. Both of these kids, both of these, these slashers, uh, 
you know, experienced their kind of trauma or their break or whatever as kids. And so I've always assumed that there is something in them that still kind of associates with small children. And that's why they, they tend to sort of give them a pass. The fact that he doesn't kill them is one of those beats that sort of fleshes Michael out as a character a little bit. Jason was uh, bullied by kids, so one would think he would have an axe to grind with them. Whereas the onset of puberty seems to be the big problem that Michael has with uh, with teenagers. His sister was sexualized and neglected him, or it's not as black and white as Jason's situation being bullied and left to drown while the counselors were banging. There's definitely kind of a tie-in to the sister getting it on being a, a, a with her boyfriend being a trigger for for Michael. Um, but yeah, it's it's just interesting that they that the films kind of go out of their way to have Michael hurt dogs, but <laughs> he, he kind of goes out of his way to even give the mother a, a pass here. So I mean, that is uh, that's like it or not. I mean, that's a statement as far as yeah. his behavior. And I do agree with you. I I would prefer that to he kills them. I I like that that it, it shows that he has some kind of line, or I don't know if it's a code, but. He does not cross a line here. It gives you some kind of weird input into his psychology. That's a good segue to talking about the incarnation of Michael. I mean, something else that we do in each of these podcasts is, well, who is the Jason or Michael of this particular film? And how does he differ, differ from the, the rest? And I think that's a good thing for us to talk about as we move into presumably the last hour of our, our podcast here. What is your general read on the the actor's performance and the conception and the depiction of this incarnation of Michael Myers? Correct me if I'm wrong. He seems a little more slight, mm-hmm. like a little less physically imposing, I think, than than other incarnations have. Otherwise, I I like the mask. To me, the visual highlight of the film is the moment when the door slams between them and Michael and Laurie are sort of looking at each other. His eyes in that in that shot, I, I found quite effective. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a it's a pretty strong performance. It's a pretty strong Michael here. It seems like they really went out of their way in this one to emphasize his eyes like the mask seems to have larger eye holes and or you just can simply see a lot more of his face and his eyes through the eye holes that kind of stood out to me about this mask and yeah he has like kind of a thinner neck and less developed shoulders uh than in a lot of these movies he definitely isn't wearing uh hockey pads or anything and he's not a bodybuilder uh so yeah he has kind of a more ordinary build it was interesting to me finding out that this uh, the actor had never seen a Halloween movie. He was not a horror movie guy or anything like that. He didn't have any experience playing this kind of thing. And, you know, he, he boiled it down very simply to the idea, the mindset of a predator, like a, a big cat or something. And that was kind of his approach to the performance was to replicate the what he'd seen in, 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 for instance, a, a cat locking on its prey and just going from sort of relaxed to uh, this sort of eerie uh, focus with a, a lethal intent. And, uh, you know, that's, that's all well and good. 
for me, uh, this is one of my least favorite <laughs> Michael Myers. I just don't see him being very uh, menacing. I just don't see him having the hero beats. And, and I don't mean that like hero beats as like a good person, but just like where you, you give a character these moments where they're just like, that's a badass. This is a formidable entity. I just, I didn't think there was a lot of standout moments and I, yeah, he's neither physically striking or in terms of his MO. I mean, I think we'll, we'll get to of the five kills in this movie and I'm only exaggerating slightly. There are not a lot of kills in this movie. Um, there, there's a, there's about 10 minutes where I'm I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is kind of, this is pretty intense. I talked about my fear of the new movie being he's a punching bag for the me too movement. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's just put up a straw man and it'll be so cathartic to, you know, to beat up this, this bad man, this abuser, this movie actually felt more like that than, than the new one. Once Lori, grabs a fire axe and starts kicking ass. I mean, he's, he's more or less, I mean, not entirely, uh, but he's more or less just there for her to get her psychic healing out of. Well, there's less without the Loomis character. There isn't a lot of talk about Michael as evil on two legs. There isn't, there isn't much sense of the supernatural about him. So he is very human. I think, uh, in a lot of ways in this one, in a way that he hasn't been in in other incarnations. He doesn't have the, the hype man, <laughs> which is what Loomis ultimately yes, was. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but he, but he, they, again, they're setting up this confrontation between him and Jamie Lee Curtis and, and Laurie Strode. And that feels like a believable confrontation when it when it finally happens. You have to pick your road a little bit, especially if you're deviating from Michael, the the tool of the Druid society, you know, which has these these very, you know, direct sort of supernatural overtones. Well, that's a good um, question. Is he is this a supernatural Michael or is it not? You run into the same thing that you that you always do, right? Like ever since the first film, Michael seems impossible to kill. You either explain that or you don't. I'm OK with them just accepting that this is this thing about Michael, that this is a slasher film. and These are the rules that apply to him and don't try to explain it, because as we get to the end, we certainly get a bit where he should very obviously be dead again to the point where he's zipped up in a body bag. That was one of the thoughts that I had. They zip him up in the body bag. And I was like, well, somebody took his fucking pulse before yes. they zipped him up in the body bag. Right. Of course. Uh, but but then he climbs out of the body bag. So how do you explain that? Well. You don't. You just you just leave it. You leave it a mystery. And so I think he is to the degree that Michael Myers can be, you know, made uh, mortal. He is. But he's also still Michael Myers. And so there's always going to be this this weird immortality around him as well. I mean, I guess by default, he proves himself immortal in that. Yeah, he does, again, take a ridiculous amount of punishment and, and is literally declared dead by trained professionals and then comes back. But he doesn't have that sort of aura. Uh, so it's kind of the worst of both worlds. Do you have any thoughts on the love interest here, Adam Arkin and his relationship with Lori? Yes, I, I love it. Okay, <laughs> I, love, well, I mean, I, I, love, I love Adam Arkin's performance. Uh, I love their their interactions. I actually feel some real 
chemistry and passion when they're like making out the first time they get sort of behind closed doors. Jamie Lee Curtis is is in a in a very unconventional way. She's a very sexy woman. It's sort of interesting for her to be able to bring that out in this character. Not that I want a lot of sensuality from Jamie Lee Curtis in the 2018 version, mm-hmm. but more but but more like this is still a person who's capable of having a relationship, who still has a need to connect with another person, whatever else. Uh, and I found it believable. He has the, the great line later on when she says that John is tired of her bullshit. And she says, what about you? Are you tired of your, of my bullshit? And he goes, oh, no, I'm a counselor. I'm attracted to it. <laughs> yes, I like him as an actor and I, I, I like their dynamic. But it is kind of funny how he just completely rolls with everything that she gives him. And I mean, like in a movie that's sort of ginning up conflict wherever it can and fake scares and all that, I guess it is sort of refreshing that there's not a single even hint of a beat where he's like, you lied to me or, you know, some, something along the lines of if you're that damaged, maybe you're not ready for a relationship or something. No, they just completely have him be like, Oh yeah, that that's cool. Yeah. Oh oh yeah, he killed your family, huh? Well, um, hey, no problema. It's just it's it it's refreshing. He's a decent guy. He he genuinely cares about her, and they're good actors. They make the material work. I really liked it. I really liked his character. I was sad to see him go. Yeah, he's he's incredibly low key. A, a terrible shot, I should point out. But you know. Oh God. Yeah. Well. Yeah. We'll get there. Fortunately, LL Cool J has in his contract that he will never die in a film. So they found a way around that. I, I never made it all the way through uh, Mindhunters, the Rennie Harlan film that he was in. But I, I, I did I did read that script and I believe he died in that. I'm pretty sure that that's not like just entirely apocryphal. Like he, he has in his contract or he did that he would never die on screen. And if you look at several of his movies, it's obvious like that they go to ridiculous lengths to have his character not die. And this is definitely one of them. Fantastic. That's a a good segue. LL Cool J is in this movie. And (laughs) (laughs) on that note, moving on. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And obviously, okay. It's kind of charming that he has this little, little, like his character be in, this is infinitely more effective than Michelle Williams character quality that you mentioned before. He's writing horn would be a a, a harsh word. Erotic, erotic fiction. fiction. Yes. Erotic fiction and reading it to his wife or girlfriend to, you know, vet it while he operates as the only security guard at this private school. It works as comedy and like it definitely makes his character pop. They get they get mileage out of it. So, well done there. We meet him in the first scene when when uh John and the friend are going to sneak out to to uh to steal a bottle of wine for this romantic evening. You get the sense of him as kind of a decent guy. He doesn't want to lose his job, but he's he's going to let the kids out. But you're also, once again, you're setting up the mechanics of, okay, there's a there's a gate. You have to hit the button to get in and out. And it makes sense from for Lori's character. Okay, so she's run, you know, as far to one coast uh, as she can away from Haddonfield, Illinois. And where does she wind up? Well, she winds up in, you know, a gated private school with round-the-clock security 
and and all these kind of security measures and stuff like it all all those things sort of fit together in a way that I liked. And of course, then we get this scene where the the mechanics of the gate pays off a little bit. You'd be lying if you told me that you didn't think he seemed like a really shitty security guard in that beat where he opens the gate and Michael just walks right past him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's not a great security guard, (laughs) which I guess is okay. Um, He's a writer, John. Okay. (laughs) But how good is a writer of a writer? Is he, if he calls breasts tumultuous, well, That's he a didn't, misuse of the word. He hadn't yet realized that it should be a romantic thriller. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure once he refocuses his novel on – I can't keep going. I'm sorry. Well, that is the clear <laughs> implication of the narrative. So Yes. Uh, but no, I agree. I actually think he's a, I think he's a, a welcome presence and a charming actor. I, again, I liked his relationship with the kids. His reaction when they come back and he's sort of caught having let them out I thought was actually pretty good. As an hour of television – you know, Dawson's Creek with some horror. They they have a Scream TV show now. I don't know where it, how it compares to this, but I would imagine uh, this is about the kind of thing that you get from it. And that's that's a very Kevin Williamson kind of thing. And that's, uh, you know, we could do in a whole podcast on why I hated the Kevin Williamson-ification of horror in the 90s and how I believe it set the genre back by a decade. I know, and I. It's funny because I know Mike. Mike used to get off, start to get off on that tangent, uh, usually later on in the evening, uh, <laughs> when he was I, deep in I his get, cups. <laughs> I would tell you that. I mean, what I think is the the Kevin Williamsonification, if that's a uh, if that's the phrase we're going to use for it. Maybe the screamification. Yeah, but I you would can say, draw a direct line between non horror content of Kevin Williamson, namely uh, Dawson's Creek. Yeah, as being the big force that then just swallowed up horror. But what I would say is it swallowed up horror for a couple of years. I don't think it did any lasting damage to it. And I like Scream. I think it's a good movie. Scream is a better movie than this one, I'll say. Well, sure. Scream is a, again, Scream redefined the genre for 10 years. But by the time we got to Urban Legend, it was over. So I don't, I don't harbor any, any real resentment towards the guy you know it's not, uh, it's not personal but i'm just no, saying it sounds, pers- it sounds personal john <laughs> i hate kevin uh, williamson no yeah. i don't but it's the idea is the slasher movies changed horror for ten, mainstream horror for 10 years and we have a giant deluge of slasher movies from the 80s that are fucking horrible but dude do i go back right now and watch obscure Williamson era, I know what you did last summer knockoffs. Do I watch Urban Legend now? Do I watch, oh God, the one with David Boreanaz that I can't even remember the name of? Like, no, I have no desire to watch any of those movies ever again, but I'll go back and watch some, you know, awful 1984 slasher movie with no one in it because I just feel like that that was a more durable and fun template that people took their shot at and yeah a lot of them are inept but now and then you get you know a slumber party massacre which is actually pretty darn good none of those people are josh hartnett or ll cool j but it it, like that movie is worth seeing and it's worth seeing in in the year 2019 i just don't feel that way about the 99 percent of the movies that came after scream 
that's fair. Let me ask you this, and this is uh, this is probably tangential, but do you think we get Cabin in the Woods if we don't get Scream? Well, I mean, look, I think you could say maybe we don't get Buffy or Angel or Cabin in the Woods or, you know, Drew Goddard or a lot of like good, uh, smart writers that have a very certain, you know, sharp dialogue, humor based approach. Kevin Williamson is sort of the godfather of Joss Whedon in a way. And and you could definitely draw a lot of lines to stuff that ended up being uh, really fun and clever and uh, deconstructive of genre and definitely scream, you know, has its place in that. But like the, just in terms of imitators, like I would almost say like, it's analogous to saying, okay, Quentin Tarantino is awesome, but do, how many Quentin Tarant- Tarantino imitations do you, do you like? And it ended up being like, not to the same degree, cause it never dominated a whole genre, But, like, I am so glad that people, for the most part, have stopped imitating Quentin Tarantino. Because it's, it's, most of them are fucking horrible. Agreed. Maybe it's just, like, people can't, can't uh, successfully imitate him. So maybe it's a compliment to Kevin Williamson that people haven't been able to do his thing. It's certainly a lot harder to do than to do, you know, a bunch of teenagers get menaced by uh, some socially underdeveloped, uh, you know, wronged human being with a axe to grind literally nice yeah so uh, also kudos for socially underdeveloped that's uh <laughs> that's tastefully put john we've really gotten we've really gotten highbrow uh in the in the post mike uh era well we, we we we're so tired of the throngs of uh picketers around our podcast headquarters that we it's decided true to... our, our facebook page has just been a deluge of uh yes. trolls so yeah, yeah. we have to All soften right. our rhetoric yeah All right. Well, Vic, do you have a lot to say about this completely meaningless uh, trip to town that all of these characters take? Uh, Other than I will say the one thing that's worthy of note to me is the little sleight of hand that Jamie Lee Curtis does with her wine, which is really, you know, kind of pathetic and obvious in a a way. But she she uh, pounds her wine while her boyfriend is in the bathroom and makes the waiter bring her another one. So it looks like she hasn't had one at all and he takes the you know the empty glass there's a furtive an addict trying to hide their addiction quality to this that i think is is poignant the the way she plays the scene with the waiter uh i i think really is really what sells it the other thing that i think matters is the scene with the son when she really blows up at him it's not george bernard shaw but it's <laughs> It is that their relationship coming to a head, which is going to pay off, you know, in in two scenes when she gives him much to his chagrin. She agrees to give him the, the permission slip to go camping. I actually think that scene works. I think they play it very well. To me, it culminates. It's that it's that scene when he's searching through the medicine bottles to find the medicine for her because he has been caring for her right. a lot. He's been carrying a lot of the water to make her functional. Their roles are not the way a typical uh, parent-child role. The distribution of responsibility is off. Exactly. And this is and this is the moment when he says, "Enough! I'm not. You know, I'm not. I'm not carrying any more water for you." Which is something that teenagers do at some point. It's murky though, because like again, and just in terms of plot dynamics. All of this is just so that he's around and no one else is, you know, on campus. Like that's the net net of this is that 
he doesn't go on this fucking trip that she didn't want him to go on and he didn't want to go on. And even when she says he should go on it, he still doesn't want to go on. So what's the point? I, I To me, the, the point, this is what we keep arguing about. To me, the point is that these become human characters with realistic relationships that we're invested in and thus don't want to see them get killed. That's absolutely a, a valid and worthwhile aim, but I don't necessarily get that result. I'm not saying I hate um, any of these characters, but I'm not like, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm really interested in the inner life of the kid who shoplifts the bottle of wine. Interestingly, by the way, in the original draft, it should be pointed out that we do kind of a scream, kind of a thing, and he ends up being uh, a copycat killer. And Michael ultimately uh, gets rid of the copycat killer. And oh. that's the kind of thing that would have made this character interesting to me, you know, because then, then there would be some subtext going on as we see him interact with the other characters and do these things because there wait, would be... uh, Char Charlie, the friend winds uh -huh. up being yes, the copycat. Yes. 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 That was, that was the original conception of this, of this character. It had a sort of a silence of the lambs dynamic originally where uh, there's a, a psycho who's helping investigators find Michael and he's kind of, you know, coaching them and explaining Michael's mentality, kind of like a reverse Loomis in a way. And I don't know if that was the exact, if that also had this copycat killer, but it probably did. And all of that was the pre uh, Jamie Lee Curtis return stuff. And then when she came on, they probably had a lot less time to develop it. And that's partially why this script gets so simplified is because they're like, ramming this into production and 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 sort of reimagining it and that's why it, it it isn't as ambitious as the previous films or as this one was even originally conceived to be we do introduce the space it's creepy and kind of run down drippy and shadowy you know the bowels of this school which is mm -hmm. where these characters apparently yeah they have work study jobs or whatever and look, if you want to talk about the value of, of the setting, as you, I think you said you wanted to, I, I, I agree with that. It's, it's kind of cool that it's not the usual sorority dorm or the suburban neighborhood. It's not a terrible setting. I'll give you that. And I like the dumbwaiter. That's, you know, I mean, we've seen a lot of dumbwaiters over the years here and there, but they get some good shit out of the dumbwaiter in this movie. We talked about this at the end of uh, Halloween six that they you you know, you felt that there was a very natural conclusion that they wound up back at the asylum at the end. Mm -hmm. And I said that that felt like just process of elimination. There was nowhere left for them to go. And so I think that part of giving this, you know, a, a fresh coat of paint is we want to get out of a suburban house. You know, we, we there's there's not anywhere left in Haddonfield for Michael to kill that he hasn't killed already. He's been to the school. He's been to the cemetery. He's been to, you know, up and down the, the streets of Haddonfield. This gave them some new options for for interesting things to do. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, of all the things I don't like about this movie, uh, the decision to put it in a remote private school uh, is not one of them. It, it mm. definitely changes things up in a, in a cool way. Um, by the way, we should talk about like briefly that this class that uh, apparently Lori is teaching um, with her own son in it. And she's talking about Frankenstein and inevitably again, like the closet that 
whoever's making these movies feel like they have to invoke fate. And I do yeah. think there's something like really fascinating. And I, I would love to smoke a lot of weed and just like really ruminate on what, what the importance of fate is in the Halloween series, because all of these filmmakers are grasping at it and they're trying to, they're trying to keep that thread going. And it's, you know, there's a lot more to it than the closet so I would love to really understand it. And I, I don't think anyone has completely maximized its dramatic potential, but it's fascinating that they, they have to invoke it every time. It certainly seems like for the purposes of this film, their goal is that, that there, is a, there is a fateful conflict to be had, you know, a showdown between Laurie Strode and Michael Myers especially again when you when you tie in the fact that they're brother and sister in in this sort of iteration that this is something that that Lori needs in order to get on with her life and that really seems to be the thing that they're setting up a lot of it really is about i think in inhabiting her character you're they're planting the seed that's going to blossom when she sends the kids on and grabs the axe and goes back to confront him but it doesn't so, really work because like Michelle Williams is talking about the fact that Frankenstein confronted the monster because the monster had killed everyone that he cared about and he had nothing left to lose. And that, I mean, maybe you can give, give it credit for being misdirection, but it clearly seems to suggest that this confrontation would happen after John, her son is killed. Her going back to fight Michael is actually very irresponsible in the sense that like, if, if the odds aren't great, she's leaving behind her son She's lost nothing, and she simply is going back to kill Michael because she'll sleep better at night. No, I mean, I think she knows that Michael will never leave them alone. The specifics of that were not lost on me. The final point that she leaves is that it was, it was, it was Frankenstein's fate to confront his monster. And his redemption. And so I feel like that's really exactly that's really the 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 seed that they're planting. You're right. It's not a it's not a a, a perfect apples to apples uh, comparison. I will just note too the other thing that struck me because it has been a long time since I since I'd seen this. I totally wrote a classroom scene with a teenage girl discussing Frankenstein with the teacher in order to illuminate thematic <laughs> elements of the story that I was trying to tell. It actually works in, in the inverse in that it winds up motivating the student to do something. But fortunately, it's one of the scripts that, that got bought and then and then withered and died. Uh, and I'm kind of pleased because I would I would actually really have to go back and rewrite that whole scene. I really did feel like I had I had unconsciously pilfered this scene. But this scene is unconsciously or very consciously, you know, pilfering from the original Halloween. Obviously. That's true. I mean, even down to the point of someone looking out the window and seeing Michael across the street. This movie is definitely doing its own version of lifting the greatest hits, uh, but just doing focusing on the first movie and yeah. a, a bit of the second movie. So night falls, and finally we're going to get uh, Michael reappearing in this film. This is where his car, his jalopy or uh, getaway car from uh, Bonnie and Clyde shows up at the gate and he outwits and outmaneuvers our security guard to gain access to the facility. And you had just referenced Vic like she knew he would not uh, he would not give up 
Well, in a real world sense, like they had him locked in this facility with the cops coming. So, I mean, yeah, okay, if he's a supernatural deity, um, he's going to get out of that. But, I mean, she could have thought that he was pretty well fucking contained and penned and the police would take care of it, uh, given that this gate is the only way in and out, as far as we know. She did blow him up earlier. I mean, you know, I'm just saying. Oh, in the, right, right, in the second movie. Yeah. In the hospital. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that would be a completely illogical assumption that somehow he would get out of it. Yeah, be that as it may, we established that this gate is the only way in and out. And look, the car's kind of creepy. All right, I think my next big problem with this movie is is where when Michael gains entry here, he starts peering in the window like a foot away from LL Cool J, like twice in this sequence. He's like right there, right there. And he just somehow like manages to wheel away every time LL Cool J turns around. It's almost comedic to me. It's totally reminiscent of the scene with Annie uh, in the laundry room from the first movie. That's what it felt like a callback to that for me. Where he's like looking in the window at her like twice. Yeah. I don't remember yes. that. I thought it was unintentionally funny that uh, like twice Michael's just like literally uh, standing at the window peering at him. And somehow he doesn't turn around. So then uh, Lori is doing Lori stuff. (laughs) (laughs) She walks around the campus. Oh, yeah. She's going to glimpse him. Uh, This is kind of cool. Where she uh, ultimately glimpses Michael and keeps rubbing her eyes and he doesn't disappear. Which is Uh, a callback because she's had these instances where she's kind of hallucinated him a couple of times. Uh, and which is again reminded me very much of what they did with Jamie in part four. That's right. Where she was having the dreams about him, and then when he finally appears, she kind of doesn't. She thinks that it's one of her hallucinations, yeah. and so they they use that same that same thing to to very similar. I I thought pretty positive effect. It's it's definitely not a terrible thing, but the jump scare here is terrible. You've mentioned them. I, I, I have to mention them. The jump scares in this movie, I, I think I said a couple of movies ago, this was the most jump scares I'd ever seen. Well, no, this movie obliterates the record of four or five or whatever that was. I almost feel like they're anti-jump scares in that like the studio or someone was saying to Steve Miner, you got to put in jump scares. And he's like, you know what? Fuck you. I'll put in jump scares. But I'm going to mistime the shit out of them. Nobody's actually <laughs> going to be scared. You know what? You you can say, all right, well, there it is. But they won't actually startle anyone. Because not a single one of these jump scares was staged in such a way that you're actually like, holy shit. You know? They're, they're half-assed. I, I feel like they have to be intentionally. But yet they're so absurdly common. Like these characters startle each other. Like the the most, like the cat is one thing, the cat jumping out of a closet. But this movie just keeps repeating the exact same jump scare where one character suddenly just appears in front of another character. Like the most devoid of ingenuity or cleverness jump scare you can imagine. It's just, oh, hey, I'm here now. And they do it over and over and over and over. And I wanted to fucking kill them for it. Donna, I'm not going to argue with you on that one. So obnoxious. Yep. And we get another totally. one here. You do. and But I will say this. 
this is the one. So if you were going to do it, you do three of them and not 12. But if you were going to do three of them, this is the one, one of the ones I would keep because I do, I actually do appreciate in the, from the, the weird meta horror screaminess of it, her running into Janet Lee and, and Janet Lee saying, well, I guess everyone gets one good, one good scare. Oh, I wasn't referring um, to that one. I was referring to uh, her boyfriend. Now we get oh, Janet you're right, Lee you're after right. that. Oh, by the way, they yeah. do show uh, Sarah Michelle Geller on the TV here. So they're That's like right. directly referencing the films of the time. Uh, I know what you did last summer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. And look, is the, <laughs> how about the, how about the cheesecake factor? We talk about the girls on these, in these podcasts. I thought the girl uh, who kind of looks like the brunette in this one, the brunette from the last movie, who's the girlfriend of the brother or whatever. Like I thought she was legitimately like nineties hot and an interesting character. I could care. I mean, I'm not, I'm sorry. I'm not saying anything bad about Michelle Williams or this actress on a personal level. There's zero sex appeal in this movie to me other than, yeah, like you said, the semi-androgynous, eccentric uh, appeal of Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing stunningly attractive. Like, it doesn't leap out at me. Um, I guess they're sort of blandly attractive. Uh, but I like, the word. <laughs> but Jodie Lynn O'Keefe has the, the least amount of stuff to do. But there is something pleasantly quirky to her. I mean, I really liked, uh, especially the second time I watched it, the conversation they have where she's like, God, I love food so much. I'm just going to get so fat. And the guy says, Charlie says, it's okay. I find obesity very sexy. Yes. She goes, she goes, you're so progressive. Okay. That was, I, I, I referenced earlier, um, like where the dialogue kind of shown, that was the exact exchange. That, yeah. That's the best exchange of the whole movie. In my I opinion. agree. But that's yeah. but so her to me that that kind of quirkiness to her character that's what stands out to me as opposed to her being just exceptionally physically attractive. Sure, sure, and she is involved in the best horror content for me of the whole film. Yes, when Michael is stalking her, and then what he ultimately does with her body are by far the only things in this movie that meet par for the course like where that mm-hmm. that's like yes that is the kind of thing i expect from a slasher film you know both in that like she gets wounded in kind of a nasty way he 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 you know cuts her leg and it looks it looks bad it looks painful and she's she's you know debilitated by it and then you know drops the dumb waiter on her on her leg and and you know that's even worse and she's she's fucking struggling here and then when he does the display of her corpse, it's like, mm-hmm. wow, he actually like hangs her somehow on, on a light fixture and it's lighting up her body from the inside. That is some good shit right there. But yes, but that's for me, that's it for the whole movie. So I enjoyed about, you know, eight and a half seconds of this movie uh, a lot. I mean, and enjoyed is obviously, it, you know, not, <laughs> not the best word <laughs> like that freaked me out. Yes. When I think about this film, that is the standout scene for sure. Once uh, Josh Hartnett and Michelle Williams stumble on her body, then Michael appears. Again, we get – to me, that's – we get some of the good uh, uh, iconic Michael Myers imagery of him sort of stepping into hallways and standing there silhouetted and stuff. 
they really do a good job of running. This is another scene where I love the mechanics of it, where I really feel like it works when they have the gate and then the door and Michelle Williams gets the gate open. And as they, they go for the door, she drops her keys yes. and all they can do is close the gate and Michael can get his arm through, but he can't quite reach them with the knife, but you just have them pressed against the door with this knife swiping inches away which is itself, again, I felt like a good sort of suspenseful scene and, and, and a, you know, again, well-executed setup. That's what I'm talking about. I love the mechanics of that scene. And then the beat when Michael looks down and sees the keys and gets down and grabs the keys. And you're like, oh, shit. That's when they, they both turn around and start banging on the door and Michael's trying the keys and stuff. That's a I found that to be a, a terrifically effective scene that culminates in Jamie Lee Curtis opens the door. They get inside. She slams the door to lock it. And all of a sudden she is face to face with Michael Myers after 20 years. That shot is as iconic as uh, anything between uh, the first Halloween and this. I'll give you that. That little snippet of this film absolutely works. And yeah, yeah it's both set up by everything else, you know, not only in this film, but in the previous films, uh, it, it manages to deliver an emotional and a visceral payoff to it. And yeah, it's, it's well orchestrated from a suspense level with the keys and all that. That's, that is solid filmmaking right there. However, much of this climax to this film is ridiculous, you know, from lover boy, Adam Arkin, shooting LL Cool J and not Michael. And yet somehow LL Cool J uh, is fine. Uh, later on, we discover to him being, I, I guess like, I, I won't say it's a terrible kill when he's reverse gutted. Impaled. Yeah. 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 It looks like a pretty painful death for a guy that we're uh, not expecting to die that way whether or not you think it's an effective character and i think most people would say he is like there's no way we're setting him up to be a dr cruz or somebody who you're like yo like kill that yeah. guy there's there's some impact to that absolutely it's it, it's sad it packs a punch but the running around and the hiding and the locking of doors and the chasing, all of that is, it's okay. It's fine. I mean, it's somewhat absurd when she's hiding under the tables and he just keeps lifting the tables one by one and she just moves on to the next table. That's that's kind of dumb, right? I thought it worked. That was one of the scenes where I sort of went, oh, like this is, you're in a boarding school. You've got a cafeteria as a set. I agree. Like it's not, it's not like she has a good plan for getting away, but I actually liked the image of him just grabbing the two tables and flipping them uh, out of the way after he gets tired of, of sort of chasing her. And I think climactically, like the fact that she winds up stabbing him with the giant kitchen knife felt very good. Now I hated a, that she dropped the knife after she oh did it. Oh my God. Especially given that Jamie Lee Curtis knew from 1978 on that that was terrible that her character yeah. did that and that she would acquiesce to doing that again is, is tragic. Yeah. And that then if you're not going to kill LL Cool J's character, the only reason he comes back is to stop her from killing him. Right. Uh, is the, the, the kind of the worst kind of plot device stuff that you could do. 
But I appreciate and actually really like where they go with it, which, again, I think is in the Kevin Williamson meta element of it, is that at least Jamie Lee Curtis knows that Michael Myers isn't dead. And so we get this great coda where she steals the van that they've loaded Michael Myers into. Yeah. crashes it and we get Michael Myers sort of pinned against this tree and and I actually really liked that scene. Uh it felt like this that first the the first scene again I like the the fact that she uses the kitchen knife. That didn't really feel like the climax to a showdown between Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael Myers. But if you tell me this used to be called The Revenge of Laurie Strode, that's what that this this final scene feels like. It really feels like like Lori actually getting closure. Well, it does. I mean, feel like in the spirit of we've seen all of these movies, the idea that she would absolutely refuse to believe that you could just zip this guy into a body bag and take him off to the the corner, and that would be the end of it. I mean that that's like kind of a few steps ahead. That's clever, you know. That like it, it's somewhat ridiculous that she you know, goes rogue and steals a gun and makes off with his van, fully knowing that this guy is going to sit up from his body bag and come after her. It's ludicrous on one level that, of of course, that's what happens. But Mm -hmm. you also have to give her credit as a character for knowing that it will happen. (laughs) Exactly. This is not the first time she's been facing One Direction and had Michael Myers sit up behind her. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of almost almost cabin in the woods you know whedon-esque cleverness in that i know Mm -hmm. how this is gonna go and everyone else is gonna think that i'm a lunatic but i know you're not really dead i think that that's kind of a mixed thing on on the one hand superficially it's ridiculous but then on another it's you know almost meta in its uh, degree of insight by the character now the van cr- crashes and she pulls good herself. Cra- good good yes. crash scene, by the way. This is good uh, stunt work. She crawls out of the out of the thing and he's he's at her mercy and he's pinned. And they have this moment where we're led to believe that she sort of feels some empathy or connection or sympathy or maybe just a sense of loss that her brother, uh, you know, has reached this point. And that she's going to have to do this. It's interesting to me that when you're looking at the actor's eyes in the mask and trying to read, like, what is he giving back to her? To me, it's very clearly that he's just as completely empty and and shark-like and unemotional as ever. Like that was my interpretation. What he's still going to kill her if he can get his hands yeah, on her. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's that's really all he's trying to do is lure her in close enough that he can kill her. It's it's very bestial. It's very animalistic and primal, and there's still no there there in in his eyes. She indulges this whatever you know moment of sentiment, and then she uh, cuts his head off, and then the movie like very abruptly just ends. <laughs> Oh no! I thought it was. I thought it was perfect. I especially dropping the uh, the original Carpenter score after she cuts off his head. The crane shot down onto her face. I mean, where there's that's there's nothing else that needs to be said. I thought it. I thought it was perfect. Yeah. No. I don't. I don't mean abruptly, as in like they should have done X, Y, and Z. I meant like that's just the end of the movie. 
they don't mess around with, uh, you know, she goes back to her son or they just like roll credits. <laughs> this, this could have been the end of the whole series. What I find humorous is that I looked at the Wikipedia page and apparently they were already concocting their back door for the next movie. Yep. And it pissed off Jamie Lee Curtis and she like almost left the project. But then they basically said, because Mustafa Akkad had a clause in his contract that would not allow anyone to definitively uh, kill off Michael Myers so that they would have the opportunity to make more sequels. Right. They shot some stuff that involved him apparently uh, switching places with the paramedic or something. This will make a lot more sense because I have, I have never seen the next movie, but apparently this is the doorway that they go through and they were uh, preparing themselves to go through it. So they were already going to undermine whatever emotional impact that this ending was supposed to have. But point being like, yeah, if you, you can accept this movie on its own terms as this is the definitive end of Michael Myers and is there some satisfaction to, you know, Laurie Strode, this babysitter, the 17-year-old uh, plucky girl who's, you know, placed in this suddenly unthinkable situation, you know, 20 years later, ending it? That That's absolutely satisfying. I actually remember enough about the beginning of Halloween Resurrection uh, that I sort of knew that that's where it was going. And and you could see how it how it could play in those terms as well. I think you have to take this movie on its own terms, at least for now. In that, in that sense, I really think it works. And John, I just want to point out for all of the your your venom directed <laughs> towards this film, uh, you liked the beginning scene. You liked LL Cool J's character. You liked the scene with Jody Leno O'Keefe's death. You liked the scene at the gate that culminates in the door closing and that stuff. And you liked the ending. Even if you hate all the connective tissue between it, that puts it certainly above, what, Halloween 2, right? My main problem with this movie is that it's just so it's so thin. Like, I, I see it as, as pedestrian and ordinary. And, like, I don't, I don't want to watch this again. As flawed as Halloween 2 is, I would definitely like with without question rather watch Halloween 2 again. If nothing else, it's a dyed in the wool slasher movie. You know, it's a very representative gory tasteless, tacky, weird, misshapen film that, you know, surprises you with some of its choices and some of those surprises are not, you know, good. They're like, you know, clumsy or I can't believe they did that. But like I, I just think that that movie fits the the paradigm of what I, I love, you know, even if I don't entirely respect about the 80s slasher genre. Whereas I see this again as like a reasonably well-executed piece of 90s television. This is absolutely the last Halloween movie I would watch again. Wowzers. All right. Sorry. I guess I, I guess I, I guess I have more I think I just have more affection for that. When you said it's like this is like Dawson's Creek meets a horror film and I was and I to be fair, I was not like a Dawson's Creek fan by any stretch of the imagination. But I think I do just have more affection for that era of cinema and, and cinema is a strong word for that era of movies and uh television. Well, I love um, I love Buffy. So, I mean, like when you you kind of had me going when you talked about would some of that stuff 
have ever happened if it wasn't for this sort of movement in in culture or in entertainment. And I would say, you know what? Okay, maybe you've convinced me. I'm glad that we we kind of entered this glib, self-referential, ironic era of depiction of young people because I think it it ended up being fun and elevating dumb teenage shit, you know, that we we saw up to that point where a lot of kids were all about, you know, re- represented as just I want to fuck very base uh crass depictions of of young people and I think that you know, this type of thing helped us move beyond that. And I think that that's important. I just want to say definitively you're wrong. (laughs) And this is a, and this is a good movie and I enjoyed watching it both times. And now that it's in my video library, I may watch it in traffic again. Good Lord. Yep. I I don't get you, Vic. I do not get you, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but nonetheless, it has been fun uh, discussing the film with you. And I'm sure I'll think of things that I I wished we'd uh, touched on. But uh, it's onward to uh, Halloween Resurrection, which uh, I have never seen. And God help me, uh, I I really hope I can dig my teeth into more than I did with this movie. I'm sure it will be interesting. Uh, just Just something to note, I believe we are down to only three Halloween movies left now since we've already done uh, the 2018 film. Oh, so you mean the the Rob Zombie films and Resurrection? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, hope everyone's enjoyed the show. And follow Vic on Twitter at... (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I I do actually have a Twitter handle. I never never look at it, but... uh, I just like my podcasting host instincts kicked in there. Yeah. (laughs) My Twitter handle is uh, I read Sutter Kane. So uh, yeah, send me send me send me a tweet and uh, maybe I'll look at it. There you I go. Uh, J O H N F is in Frank underscore Evans. That's very original, John. I'm just gonna say I I have the better I have I, the better Twitter. Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, you won yeah. that debate. Vic. You're goddamn right. <laughs> All right. All right, everybody, take care. Adios. Adios.